the National Archives podcast series, using the 1939 register, recording the UK population before the war, presented by Audrey Collins. This talk was recorded on the 12th of December 2015 at the National Archives, Kew. Well, it's very nice to see such a lovely big crowd, especially since we had a talk about the 1939 register just over a month ago. So, first of all, the title, using the 1939 register, recording the UK population before the war. I know it's not strictly before the war, but it's what you might call the phony war. War was declared on the 7th of September, and uh, the register was taken on the 29th of September. But it was sort of before the war or on the brink of war in the sense that an awful lot of the things that then happened couldn't have been done without the register being taken. Now, it looks an awful lot like a census. And in fact, the staff who used to work with this register when it was called the Central Register at Southport often used to refer to it as the 1939 census. But it's... It looks a lot like it, but it's very, very different um, in some quite significant ways, which we will discuss as we go along. This is, um, I'm afraid the first few illustrations are all sort of buff-coloured typescript, not very exciting to look at. This I've included, it's one of the many, many circulars. It's GRO, General Register Office Circular NR1. So one of, I have no idea how many, but there were lots. And this was dated 1938. So the plans were well in hand by 1938. In fact, we've got lots of preparation documents which predate that by quite a long way. From about 1934-35, there were fairly specific plans being drawn up. So when um, you know, the, the whistle was blown, everybody was all ready to go. So it had been a long time in the planning. Also, although it's called the census and it shouldn't be called a census because it's different, what makes this wonderfully confusing is that plans were being set up simultaneously for taking this, which we now call the 1939 register. Nobody called it that at the time. Um, But plans were being drawn up to take this register and also the 1941 census because... At the time, in 1934, 35, 36, people had a pretty good idea there was going to be a war, but not really when that might be. And it could have been if it was a very short war and all everything was all over, then the 41 census would have been taken. If um, nothing happened until after 1941, it's all very well us with our hindsight. We know 1939 to 45, but of course the people in the 1930s could only guess at that. So the plans were in place for both things, and it, it would have been perfectly possible for both, both surveys, if you like, to be taken. The um, enumerators were recruited unusually a long way in advance. With a census, you normally recruit the, the enumerators just with a few months to go. In the case of the 41 census, which never happened, of course, and the 39 register, the recruiting was done well in advance so that it didn't have to be done in a mad scramble. Now, one of the reasons I said it looks like a census but it's not a census is that in a very specific legal sense, all censuses from 1921 onwards have been taken under the 1920 Census Act. National registration was different and it had its very own act. Uh, And that was passed in September 1939 after war had broken out. It was that it was already already drafted and ready to go, um, but it wasn't until that act was passed that the 39 register was actually going to be taken. Now, like a census, it was organised by the superintendent registrars and the registrars of births and deaths. And as in a census, each registrar divided up their area Uh, using what were called plans of division, into enumeration districts. And this is where you get the distinction. They drew up the usual sort of enumeration districts, allowing for the changes in population since the 1931 census. And uh, goodness knows there was plenty of that. You only have to 
look at the amount of um, development in the 1930s, the, the ribbon development, all those nice 1930s semi-detached houses. I think I've lived in at least three or four of them. Uh, so there were changes in the population which they took into account, but the extra step they took was subdividing their enumeration districts still further so that in the event of a national register being taken, and only in the event of a national register, they had a, a sort of a second stream of enumerators to call on because the enumeration districts were much smaller. They were meant to be about 300 households. And this was because this enumeration needed to be done very quickly and very accurately. And the duties of the enumerator were more than they were for a census. The census enumerator goes round, shoves a form through everybody's door, might speak to them, but essentially all he's got to do, uh, or she, is deliver a household schedule, which has got instructions on it, and then after census night, has to go back and collect it. Maybe glance at it to see that they haven't scrawled any obscenities on it, but um, that was about it. A cursory glance, and uh, picking up any obvious mistakes or misapprehensions. That was all they had to do. With the 39 register, they not only had to make sure that every household got uh, their household schedule, they also had to go back and not just collect it, but go into the household and sit down and check through all the information with the head of the household or a responsible adult there and on the spot issue right out identity cards for every single person in the household. So that was going to take a whole lot longer than just going, got your form, thank you very much, I'm off. And I don't know if any of you watched the um, drama Homefront that was on a few months ago, which I thought was rather good. But when they got to the bit where they were getting their national registration forms, I thought, I bet I know what they're going to get wrong. And being the sad act that I am, I, I did a freeze frame to see, yeah, definitely the right form they're filling in. Well done, you. But, it, of course, what they then did was you saw... Um, people just handing the form to the, you know, the man with the briefcase who tipped his hat and then went off. No, that man had to come in and sit down in the house. So uh, it was, it's quite a good drama apart from that. I won't hold it against them. It's just the sort of nerdy thing that I pick up. And I suspect so do some of you. And you'll notice it now if you watch it again. So that made the enumerator's job a lot more difficult. Also, if you're doing a census, the whole point of a census is the big picture. It's to get statistics, to get information about the population as a whole. From the point of view of the family historian, decades or centuries later, it's absolutely brilliant that you've got these lists of names. But from the point of view of the census itself, if you miss out a few, well, it's unfortunate, but it's not going to affect the overall totals and your overall conclusions. National registration was quite different. Statistics were produced and they were quite useful, but the object of the exercise was to record every individual accurately. So if you had missed out a few people, it did matter. And you just had to keep going back um, or take various measures, which I will explain later, to make sure that everybody was registered. So that's why the enumerator's job was much more difficult. Having done all this going round with presumably a very heavy briefcase full of um, the usual spare schedules and lots and lots of blank identity cards to write out, um, they then had to take home all the household schedules and they still had to copy them up into uh, what were called the transcript books. And the transcript books are the things which we now see online with all the big um, black horizontal stripes um, over the redacted entries. That's, that's the, um, the transcription books. Those were the things which were sent to the central register and, and were bound into the volumes which were still in use um, until the early 1990s. So that was why it looks like a census, but it's not a census, but it's very, very similar. This is a nice little document that I found, and we've got various versions of this. And these are the area codes for England and Wales, um, which I will enlarge on those a little bit later. And I didn't have time to do this in the webinar. Uh, but this was every single 
area, which could be an urban district, rural district, or uh, borough. There was a, a, a lovely big alphabetical list of all of those. Now, the whole of this uh, table, you can actually see that on the Find My Past website. So if you want to look at all the area codes, you can look at them. First of all, they've got them in alphabetically by place, as they are in, in this uh, paper document. And also, they have regrouped them geographically as well. So the, the, the two lists are, are next to each other. So you can browse through them. So that's quite a nice thing to do if you're as nerdy as me. But I think it does give you an idea of the, the geographical layout. And of course, if you've, people can't resist looking at any identity cards or ration books they may have or acquire or you know somebody has got them knocking about in the house there's a lot of them around and look at the area because oh yes that's right yeah, that matches this um is the household schedule i mentioned that um every household was given there were as there always is with the census lots and lots of slightly different format ones um this is a standard one but you've got bigger ones for larger households and even bigger ones for very large households or uh, institutions. And then there were the various ones in the Welsh language and so on. And that's what they looked like. And if you, are, if you think of the 1911 household schedules, which we've had a few years to have a good look at and get used to, you can see there is a lot less information gathered on this one. This was another reason. This has got to be done fast and it's got to be done accurately. So we're not going to ask lots of detailed questions that we don't have a specific purpose for. And what they ask for here is each person's name, you get their sex, uh, their marital status, and their exact date of birth. And this is the really nice thing about it. No census had asked for a date of birth, only a year, or, or at least an age, which... Uh, if, if, you, if you work that out, because the census was always in the earlier part of the year, and if you subtract somebody's age from the year, three quarters of them are going to be a year out. That's assuming people put the right age down in the first place. With the um, asking for a date of birth, as a general rule, the more specific the information you ask for, the more accurate your answers are likely to be. Uh, not all the time, because some people still did have a struggle working out what their own date of birth was. And we know that because um, one of the other things I found was the, a script of the uh, Registrar-General's broadcast to the nation on census night, 29th of September, and it was on, um, on the home service, and we got this recorded. So although you can't l listen to the actual broadcast, which I'm sure is long, long gone, uh, you can list, listen to it being read um, by a member of staff who, is, who used to be an actor. So it's jolly good. And the, the Registrar-General is, is sure that you will cope splendidly. Um, it's just wonderful. It is on our website. If you go to the bit where we've got all our podcasts and audio, um, and you, you can search for it there, registration night. But it's well worth listening to. It's about 15 minutes long, but it does give you a flavour. And he does explain in some detail how you can work out your year of birth if you're not sure what it is. Um, so it, it's well worth listening to. So that's the household schedule with this fairly limited amount of information. It also asked for occupation. And the reason for this was obviously it's useful to know what people's occupations are. But this was not only your current occupation, but also any other qualifications or skills that you had. And this was for wartime planning. If you knew what somebody could turn their hand to, even if they were doing a, an unskilled job at the moment or they were you know, between jobs or resting, then that could be very useful in not just when you came to conscript people into the armed forces or um, send them down the mines, um, but also for just directing labor um, in, in civilian life. And the, the main objects, um, as stated for the National Register, were, first of all, to get a nice, accurate knowledge of the population, because it was now nearly a decade since the last census, and also to make sure that everybody got a ration book, because rationing was coming. Everybody knew that. 
and it was very specifically built into the plan. In fact, one of the reasons that was done was because national registration had been tried out in the First World War. And it had worked up to a point, but there were a number of things about it that didn't work very well. And in fact, there was a report um, at the time when national registration was, was being uh, rolled out in 1915 by Sylvanus Vivian, who was the uh, a senior official uh, working with national insurance. And what he said at the time was, well, the General Register Office are very good at taking censuses. They've been doing that for a long time. They've got that. What they don't have and what he did not see built into the plans for national registration in the First World War was an efficient way of keeping a rolling register, keeping it up to date. Because a census is just where everybody's standing when the music stops. That's it. That's all you need. And it doesn't get updated or changed. This had to be a census-like survey, but it had to be constantly updated as people moved around, as babies were born, people came into the country, people died, and so on. So it was this um, keeping a, a, a rolling up-to-date register that he said, quite prophetically, that this bit was not going to work very well. And of course it didn't. And with his experience of national insurance, which at the time was really quite new, he knew a thing or two about um, keeping things up-to-date. And one of the things that he said was that it's all very well, you can have as many rules as you like and as many penalties as you like, but you need an incentive too. And the biggest single, really simple incentive was if you don't get registered, you don't get a ration book. So at a stroke, that discouraged an awful lot of people who might have thought, well, if I don't register, they don't know where I am and they can't call me up and send me out somewhere horrible and foreign to be shot at. Now, there certainly were some people who avoided being registered in the first sweep. Um, and I don't think we can ever know for certain exactly how many there were, but it certainly was a factor. Uh, and then they discovered fairly quickly that they're going to be jolly hungry. So um, it, most people got, uh, got rounded up and registered uh, sooner rather than later. So th this, this was a, a really crucial thing that was built into it, and that ensured that it was remarkably accurate. Nothing's perfect, this certainly isn't, but it's probably as close as you could get. In 1915, though, what he had no way of knowing was that a couple of decades later, in the 1930s, he was going to be the Registrar-General who was going to be in charge of rolling this whole operation out. So he had, in some ways, he was the perfect candidate for this because by this time he'd been with the General Register Office for a number of years and anyway, he knew that the GRO knew how to take a census. And um, they'd, they'd done another two since he made his uh, initial remarks. Um, and of course, with his experience of national insurance, he knew how to combine the two. So on the whole, it worked remarkably well. And um, I think Sylvanus Vivian is a wonderful name for a registrar. Registrar General, sorry, inadvertently demoted him. That was the instructions which were on the back of the form, which are just thrilling and exciting to read. Um, the significant thing about this is that the, the advice on filling up occupation was fairly basic. They decided at a fairly early stage that they weren't going to make really detailed statistical reports of the occupations because that's a very labour-intensive and a very skilled job. So it was a fairly broad brushstrokes one, and the, the, ca the categories uh, used in 1939 don't very closely resemble um, the Registrar General's classification of occupations, which you get in censuses before and after that. So it was very specifically for sort of wartime planning purposes. This is something that you are unlikely to see very many of. It's a completed household schedule, or more specifically, it's a photograph of one. I am reasonably certain that the great majority of these do not survive in any shape or form. They were the original schedules, once the enumerator had collected them, they were sent to the local food offices where ration books were prepared. And they were still kept, we know, uh, in 1947 and probably a good bit later than that, while national registration and rationing were still in force. The reason that this one survives 
for the, the eagle-eyed among you, you may have noticed the reference down in the bottom right-hand corner um, because I've been well-trained. I always put a document reference. And this document reference is CRIM1 forward slash 1695. And in the very top of this um, document, you've got little red letters that say X, or as in EX3. It was an exhibit in a criminal case. And there is a whole file on this, and it's absolutely fascinating. Um, in the newspapers, there are a couple of very small um, notices about uh, you know, oh, at the Old Bailey on a day, which I've now forgotten, in 1945 anyway. Um, John Siegel was fined £200 plus costs for stealing four shillings and eightpence worth of meat. Well, that seems like a, a very severe punishment, um, although you might stop and think, if you stole four shillings and eightpence worth of meat, why is this at the Old Bailey? Well, the reason was that this was not a, uh, an opportunist theft. This was a calculated act of fraud. In 1939, Mr. Siegel was a married man with two grown-up married daughters. He also had a girlfriend and two much younger daughters uh, for whom he provided. And when um, his lady friend was filling in her household schedule, um, he strongly suggested that she put in an extra person who didn't exist. And uh, she, was, she was a bit uncomfortable about this, but um, she, was, she was completely in his power because he was paying for the flat. He was paying for um, her upkeep and the two daughters, so she didn't really have much of a choice. Anyway, so she had the completely invented person. Um, these two people here, well, she had a, a sister called Rose who was married to a man called Thomas Howard. Um, but this isn't them. This is a completely fictitious Thomas and Rose Howard. The real Thomas and Rose Howard were properly registered at their proper addresses with their proper dates of birth. These ones are just made up. Um, there was a third address that he had access to, um, and he put down the variations on the single names of his two married daughters. So he created five completely bogus identities and got five completely illegal ration books, which he used to collect rations for five adults throughout the course of the war. So he, the specimen case where they'd got all the evidence um, was four shillings and eightpence worth of meat, but he'd been getting away with it for five years. That's why it was at the Old Bailey, and that's why he got such a whopping great fine. And I think they, the, uh, look, looking at the reports on the case, I think he was quite lucky not to be jailed, but it was on account of his age, because he was something like 61, which I frankly don't think is that old. Um, <laughs> but that survives because it's in the, the evidence that was presented at the Old Bailey, and that whole file is fascinating. He wasn't the only person, of course, who uh, got up to no good. Where there is a system, there will always be fine. Be somebody who finds the angles, who, uh, you know, either the opportunist um, or the, the, the deliberate fraudster. And I'm always terribly interested in fraud, so I must look into more of these. But there were certainly lots of other cases. But I just produced this one because it's a very rare chance to see uh, a, an actual filled-in household schedule even though the people in it are completely fictitious. You will be pleased to know, though, that if you look them up on the register itself, that they have been crossed out and annotated as being fraudulent entries. So, uh, you know, the, the, it took a while, but the system worked. This is a website, HistPop, <coughs> the Online Historical Population Reports website. Some of you may be familiar with it. Um, if not, I strongly recommend that you look at it. It's not a family history site at all. You will find very, very few personal names in there. But it's all about the background to census and registration generally, mainly for England and Wales, but some quite nice bits and pieces for Scotland and Ireland too. And a lot of the content in there is printed reports, from which you can also see on parliamentary papers. But a lot of it is documents here in the National Archives. And the ones that I showed you, apart from that completed household schedule, the specimen one and the circular, all those dull, buff-coloured things with TypeScript on, they were all um, taken from this website. Uh, if you, you can search by keyword or you can browse. And just, just to give you a shortcut, 
if you use the, the browse function, you'll see that you've got a menu on the left. And if you suggest, so select the one that says TNA registration, you get three pages of content and the um, interesting stuff about national registration. Um, also a bit for the First World War stuff too is uh, on the second and third pages of that. And it's really interesting to look at. It's still only a fraction um, of all the documentation that we've got. I found lots of stuff where I actually had to order up paper files and read the things. But there's enough on there to, to um, give you a nice lot of background reading if, like me, you like that kind of thing. This is uh, the building at Southport where uh, the magic all happened. Smedley Hydro, which is still in use. If you send off for a birth, marriage or death certificate from the General Register Office, that is where um, it's produced and posted out from. Um, it used to be, and you can tell by looking at it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't built for the civil service to use. Um, it, it was a, a, a hotel. And when uh, the General Register Office, like a lot of other government departments, were evacuated from London for the war, um, this was where they went. Um, this was the, the, where the business was carried on, and there were various other hotels where the staff were billeted. And uh, the, this is uh, the, the, the lovely sort of bay window at the front that you can see. Last time I was there, that was where the, uh, you know, the, the staff restaurant was. And uh, the, uh, the books that we're now um, looking at online, they were kept in what was called the ballroom. And it was called the ballroom because that's exactly what it was and is a beautiful, beautiful room, which I think may even have a sprung floor and wonderful uh, molded ceilings. And it was full of metal Dexian shelving with all these thousands of books on it. It didn't look at its best. It's been restored to its former glory now, which is rather nice. But that's, uh, that is Smedley Hydro where the, um, the, the nerve centre of the operation was. Technically, the headquarters were still at Somerset House in London, but after the war, the National Register continued there, and certificate production uh, went there much later. But uh, it was all to do with the, uh, with the war, so that's why your certificates come from Smedley Hydro in, Press, in, uh, in Southport. Uh, it was because that's where the GRO were, were evacuated. They were sent to the seaside for the duration of the war, and some of them stayed. And that's uh, the basement, which still looks remarkably like that. Handily doubled as an air raid shelter for the staff who were up there. And to the, as far as I know, they still keep um, lots of documents and volumes uh, down there, um, duplicate copies of the, of the indexes and so forth. Um, the, this, the, these pictures are obviously a good few years old. Uh, but that's, uh, that, that, that's where it all went on. Now... Who's in this register? Theoretically, every civilian who was in England and Wales on the 29th of September, 1939, regardless of their age or their nationality. So this includes anybody, any foreign visitors, embassy and consular staff, inmates of institutions, civilians on military bases, the people who are actually in the military were... Um, dealt with by military authorities, but civilians who were on the bases, they were enumerated in, or, or they should have been, in this uh, 1939 register. And of course, like a, any census, it will also include people who were away from their normal home addresses. We do very easily fall into the habit, and I do it myself, say, oh, he was living at such and such an address in, in this or that census, when what we should really say is, he or she was present at that address on that night. Most of the time you'll see people and where they are, it's their home address. But it could be somebody who spent only one night in their entire life under that particular roof, um, and that's where they'll be enumerated. So some people will be not at all where you expect them to be. They're the obvious people like the travelling salesman or anybody whose job uh, takes them around, you know, theatricals and all sorts. Um, evacuees. Huge numbers of school children, of course, had been evacuated at the beginning of September. Not just the children, teachers went with them, and there were other vulnerable groups, disabled people um, and, and the very elderly, who might be either part of an organised evacuation or simply 
their families decided it would be safer to send them to relatives in the country. So a lot of people were away from home. So you might, if, if, if you have family that were in London or any other big city, you might find the parents still there, but the children will be off somewhere else being evacuees. And, of course, if you, have a, if you come from a family in a country area and you say, well, I recognise this person and this person, but who are the blazers are these ones? They might be evacuees, particularly in the southern part of the country because a lot of evacuees were sent to places in the you know, nice country areas in the south. And then after Dunkirk, I thought, mm, maybe the Dorset coast isn't the safest place after all. So the evacuees were moved. So most people will remember that old mum or granny or granddad was an evacuee, but they won't necessarily know that granny or grandpa or great-grandpa took in evacuees, especially if it was only for a fairly short period at the beginning of the war. This is the sort of thing that you know, we're beginning to discover. And also, my, my, my favourite, um, I mentioned people who travel as part of their jobs, seasonal workers, um, hop pickers. It was a very good harvest that year. And of course, it was well known that a large number of people, mainly from the east end of London, would go out and spend the summer in the hop fields in Kent, picking hops. Now, huge numbers of them had gone back home uh, to be enumerated at their, at their home address, but plenty didn't. And if you'd care to put in, uh, do an occupation search and put in hop picker, and you'll see what I mean, there's plenty of them. You are only a hop picker while you're in Kent doing the hop picking. When you're back in you know, Shoreditch or Bethnal Green, you're not a hop picker anymore. Um, so there were lots and lots of them. So that's a, that's a lovely example of people who might be not at all where you're expecting them to be. Um, this is a, a nice um, newspaper photograph from uh, the Nottingham Evening Post on registration night. Uh, and this is the Salvation Army hostel. And there is the Salvation Army officer dutifully uh, very carefully making a, a note of all the details of the uh, gentleman of the road um, who spent the night in the hostel. And I don't know how well you can see it, but when I looked at this on the screen, I thought the, the tall gentleman in the centre who's facing the camera, I think that is a dead ringer for Nigel Planer. Um, <laughs> but that's a really nice example of how very, very thorough the enumerators and the, the various public officials were to make sure that everybody got registered, um, even the people that you would think might be very easy to miss. But of course, who is not in it is the other thing we need to know. Well, anyone who was outside England and Wales on the 29th of September, even temporarily. Now, the National Register was taken throughout the United Kingdom and the Channel Islands and the Isle of Man. The register that we have is England and Wales only. The register for Scotland and for Northern Ireland, they are um, open, as the English one was for, for quite a while, to freedom of information requests, but neither of them um, has been digitised and released in the way that the England and Wales books were. So um, if you've got one of these families that's awfully close to the... Um, the border it's just a matter of luck which side they happened to be on in 1939 so anybody who was outside England and Wales won't be in the register that we can look at people who were already in the armed forces won't be included because they were registered by the military authorities themselves although bear in mind that conscription didn't start until 1940 you couldn't conscript people until you'd got this nice accurate list compiled. So even though you know that this or that person was in the forces, they may not have been in there until they were called up. So obviously some people would have volunteered straight away, as they did in the First World War. But an awful lot of people that you know were later in the forces, very likely still civilians. Unless they were home on leave. Um, I, and you do see a few of those. Once they went back to, you know, reported back to their barracks or their ship or whatever, then they would uh, become part of the military setup. But um, you will see a small number of actual serving soldiers, sailors, airmen, and women. Merchant Navy. 
One of the documents I was looking at starts off, semen are a difficult case at all times. And, you know, it's nothing personal. Um, but records-wise, I cannot argue with that. Uh, merchant Navy personnel are incredibly difficult to, you know, to list and to categorise. By definition, they're extremely mobile. And the, the way they were enumerated, theoretically, Merchant Navy personnel were supposed to be on a register which uh, was um, organised by the Registrar General of Shipping and Seamen who I'm afraid, <laughs> did I hear a humph in the, yes. I am afraid the Registrar General of Shipping and Seamen, not the best record-keeping authority there has ever been. Um, and, of course, you, there's a lot of grey areas. Is somebody a merchant seaman? He's ashore, but is he going to go back on a ship? And, of course, fishermen. There, there are definitions, but, you know, there are always grey areas. If you're a fisherman who just goes out to sea from time to time, he just goes for a day or for a few hours, then in some senses you count as Merchant Navy because you've got to be competent to you know, take a boat out without killing everybody on it. But for the purposes of registration, you would be a civilian. So there's, there are going to be lots of not quite right things in there because there are complicated rules and there are always people who don't quite fit the categories. So Merchant Navy personnel shouldn't be there, but you will find some that, that are. And, of course, anyone who was born after the 29th of September, um, they would be on a, a separate register. Uh, whenever anyone was born, their birth registration would immediately be go into national registration. Um, and I, I know how the number series worked, which is actually a bit sad. Um, so it's only the people who were there on, 1930, on 29th of September and not... Uh, anybody who was born afterwards, um, anyone who was registered late for any reason. And this could be the people who were trying to avoid conscription or whose mothers, very understandably, didn't put them down because they didn't want them conscripted and then realised, oops, this isn't going to work. Um, and there were people who, despite the best efforts of the enumerators and the authorities, were just never at home um, when the when the rate when he came back, uh, he or she came back to collect the form. Uh, there were some people who were missed out in the first place. The um, th there are accounts by enumerators who had great difficulty trying to make sure that they'd got every single um, dwelling in their patch. You know, lots of lots of addresses. A nice row of suburban semis is very simple. Uh, but when you've got complicated inner cities and you've got flats over shops and buildings that are divided up and buildings with entrances on more than one street or there are any number of reasons. Anybody who has ever had to do so much as a leaflet drop will know how difficult and awkward some addresses can be to find and make sure you've got everything. And on the whole, we've never had to do that in the blackout. So there are, sometimes I think it's amazing we got as much information as we actually did. But there are reports of people who said, you know, I've, nobody ever came and gave me a form. Uh, and then I don't know what the cutoff date was. Um, the enumerators had to make every, the best effort to get all the information and go back as often as it took. Um, but once the, the, their transcription books were written up, you couldn't add anybody else in. Once you'd sent them off, you hadn't got the books to add them into anymore. So anybody who was registered late for any reason had to you know, um, go to the local, uh, the local national registration office as opposed to the central national registration office um, and register in person there. So, and they would go into you know, a separate register along with the people who'd arrived in the country uh, after that date. And as far as, this is where we have a difficulty because as far as the registration authorities were, were concerned, so long as they'd got everybody, it didn't matter which books they were in because they'd got, well, there's this enumeration that was taken in September 39 and then there's the people that were born afterwards and then there were the latecomers that we scooped up and then there were this. And they'd got all those books. They were all together in, in, the, same, in the same set of rooms um, in Southport. And it didn't matter whether somebody was in that book or that book because they got access to them all. 
Now it's only the September 39 enumeration that we have, so it does matter. But until that was taken separately and released, there was no reason to make a distinction. So if I find out, I will write about it, but I, I don't see any reason why anybody would have cared very much about what the... I don't think there would be a national cut-off date. I think it would just be, do what you can and we'll mop up the stragglers later. Still lots to discover. And you know, finally said the people who were actively avoiding registration. It could be the, you know, the, the, the young sons of well-meaning mothers, uh, but there were a few players. They were the duckers and divers, the criminals. Not vast numbers, but there were a few. Probably roughly balanced out by the, the phantom identities created by Mr. Siegel and his like. <laughs> but at least where this was found, uh, the, the register was fairly accurately kept up. So there will be a few of those. Closed and open records. Now, this is um, closed records. Because this is not a census, it's not governed by the Census Act, but it still adopts what is called the 100-year rule. And that is um, a general rule. Anyone who was born less than 100 years ago should be closed if they are still alive. Open records are anybody born over 100 years ago and there, there, there are always going to be some. Anybody who was born less than 100 years ago um, and who has died and whose death was notified to the registration authorities. Theoretically, this is anyone who died up to 1991. In practice, this is not quite true because not all deaths were notified to the central register during that time. The reason is, it became the National Health Service Register, which I think we probably all know now. National registration carried on until 1952, uh, and the National Health Service started in 1948. So we've got a four-year crossover when this big set of books was the National Register, but it was also the Health Service Register. Once national registration was wound up, it was no longer compulsory to notify changes of addresses and so forth. You were still supposed to do it, but it was another bit of admin. Um, it was stuff that you needed to notify the health authorities. And what's supposed to happen is that, for example, when a person dies, their GP notifies the central register so that that person can be removed from the register. Now, up to 1952, this was a legal requirement. After that, it was as good as the paperwork was. So if a doctor wasn't terribly good at paperwork, or if a patient died in an accident a couple of hundred miles away from home, no particular reason why their GP would automatically be informed. Similarly for some people who died in hospital. You maybe think they should know, and nowadays they would, but... It, it wasn't an automatic process, and um, it was always known that there, there, were an, there was an element uh, where there were more names on the register than there should be, allowing for the, you know, the rates of um, immigration, emigration, births and deaths. You, know, you, you, you can't, you know, statistically, you can work out the approximate numbers, and you know when you've got too many. What you don't know is exactly who those extras are. But it was a known phenomenon. It was called inflation. And they, they knew that there were too many people, but the only way to, um, find, to do, get it thoroughly checked was to do intensive audits in particular places, which was incredibly time-consuming and expensive. So um, there were names on there um, long after that person had died. And, of course, anybody... Um, who died overseas, no reason to notify. And the biggest problem here, I think, will be people who died in service during the Second World War. Because as soon as you joined the armed forces, you were removed from the civilian register. If you died in service, you weren't going to be around when it became the National Health Service register, <laughs> or, or even while national registration was still going on. So um, there will be a lot of people that you know they're dead 
because they died in the war, but if they were born less than 100 years ago, the chances are their record is still closed because there was no reason at all for um, the people running the register to know about it. Um, so the, 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 there's all sorts of um, reasons why, theoretically, deaths up to 1991 should be noted. In practice, they won't all be. This, uh, you've probably seen this. This is just the uh, page on Find My Past. It's the basic search page. I never use a basic search page. I always go to uh, um, an advanced search page. I'm not going to go into this because these things change over time, except to tell you that if you go to the advanced search um, and they have links to useful resources, uh, the top useful resource is that list of all the area codes uh, so you can see... Um, geographically or alphabetically by place. Let's look at some actual bits of the register itself. I'm sure uh, most, if not all of you, have already had a look, um, either from home or looking on the, uh, the computers here. And this is, there's no such thing as an average page, but this one will do as well as any other. You can see up at the top, you've got the name of the, um, the, the what, in this case, it's a, a county borough, and the the, the four-letter code, which is the uh, the area code, and the last one is the uh, the enumeration district, and the names of the individuals there. And some of the records are blanked out because the those people those those are closed records because that person was born less than a hundred years ago, and their death hasn't been notified to the register. Uh, there are a few cases, and again, I was looking at a document this morning that confirmed this, that um, the, when you've got all these lines, there were going to be odd cases where the, the D code, which is the, the, the notification of death, would be written on the, on the wrong line or slightly ambiguously. So there will be little clerical errors which date back decades so you may get records which are closed that should be open and open that should be closed because of clerical errors decades ago before people start getting into transcribing and making clerical er uh, you know, 21st century clerical errors. We all do it. Uh, you've got all the names and the dates of birth and uh, one of the, the rather nice features, which is terribly useful for tracing forward, is changes of name. These are almost always women on marriage, but uh, you know, there are other reasons for changing names. Everybody is written down with the name they have in 1939, but if that changes, then the name will be crossed out and their subsequent name written in. The instructions to the transcribers was to re were to record everybody under their most recent name with previous names in brackets. And I found a nice example. It's not this one here, but... Um, it was a family that I knew a very great deal about. And this is where I got some very nice evidence about notifications not always being done. With someone, um, she's there in 1939. I know that she married in 1944. So her surname is crossed out, new married name in. And it wasn't until some time later I thought, hang on a minute. She divorced him. She remarried in 1958. And I know she did. We've got the marriage. But that married name hasn't been added so either she didn't notify her doctor that she changed her name or that paperwork didn't get from the doctor to the central register doesn't matter a whole lot you know in the, the great scheme of things except that it does provide me with evidence that there is a fact which I absolutely know occurred but it wasn't notified we can't tell with the deaths because the notification of death would be written on a bit that we can never see because what you have here is the left-hand page of a double-page spread and a bit of the right-hand page. And the confidential health information, including usually the death codes, is on the bit that we can't see. So we can't tell if anybody got that right. But you can tell if a name that should be crossed out and replaced hasn't been. So I, was, I, I must tell my friend whose mother that was um, that she made a great contribution to scholarship there. Um, so that's the sort of thing that you might see. You will, the, the nice things you get in this right-hand column are very often where people are ARP wardens or fire watchers or some kind of war service. 
And you will also see somewhere it says see page something else. These are nowhere near as interesting as they look. What we've, the best we can come up with is that, that you, you will usually see exactly the same details for some reason written at the end of the district again. We've got what we've got. We don't have the thought processes of the several generations of civil servants who use these books continually for 60 years. Um, so we don't know what an awful lot of these things mean. You'll see little um, notes there. Uh, there's one on this one, which is actually quite a good example. And it says CR283 and then a squiggle and something that might be a date. Um, we've not been provided with any intelligence or lists of what these codes mean, except that what they very often will mean is the CR283, and it's ilk, that will often be the serial number of the particular form that was used to notify this or that piece of information. So if you have an encyclopedic knowledge or a lot of time on your hands and you can figure out what all those forms were, and I'm sure the answers are somewhere in the records here, please feel free to look, then um, you know, we might be able to come up with something. But most of the time, they're interesting, inscrutable comments and you know, make, feel free to make an educated guess, but you're probably not going to get a, a wonderful, fabulous, definitive answer. Um, this is the, the bottom of the same page, and it illustrates something which you will find very frequently. Because these books were in constant use for 60 years, with lots of people's grubby fingers and little rubber finger stalls and things, um, they got damaged and torn, and they were mended with sellotape, which would give any of our um, collection care staff a complete fit of the vapours, obviously. Um, and when you mend things with sellotape, well, it kind of works, but it leaves a lovely dark brown treacly mess. And uh, fortunately, when I was looking for um, William and Mary Brown, fortunately, I knew William Brown's exact date of birth, so it didn't matter terribly much that Mary's um, is virtually unreadable. Um, and you do find pe sometimes finding people by date of birth. I mean, in this case, that was covered up. But sometimes when other horrible things have happened to the, uh, the names, the, um, the date of birth is your salvation. The lady I mentioned whose um, later marriage is not recorded on there, I took several attempts to find her in the first place. I tried looking for her by a full name. Nah. Tried looking. It's a fairly unusual name. And I tried looking under her exact birth date and her first name, because her surname's unusual and it could be mistranscribed. Nah. Then I tried exact date of birth and surname only, and I found her. Her first name was Amelia, but it was, it was in such a horrible, mangled state that you couldn't read the am, only the Elia. And I couldn't put it in as a correction because there was, you know, nobody could possibly say that that is an A and an M. I know what it should be because I know a lot about the family, but you never get that from there. And my very favourite was someone um, who was desperately trying to find. Uh, the man was an MP and tried everything, tried name, various combinations of name, and in the end, date of birth and first name, nothing else. And I thought, I'm going to look and see if there is a surname that looks as though it might be about the right shape. And he's been hideously mangled. There wasn't one that looked remotely like it. And down at the bottom, there was one, Richard R., and then um, a, a row of question marks. So I clicked on it, looked at the image, and it was him. Um, and I, Well, it was in Westminster, which was a good sign, MP. Right? It was him, and it gave the name of his constituency and everything. But you would never, ever have found him by his name, because where his surname is, it's been completely covered by a lovely great big ink blot. You can just about see a tiny little bit of what is a letter in his name poking out by a fraction of a millimetre. Uh, but those of us who uh, learnt to write in the era of dippy pens and cheap, leaky um, fountain pens will be familiar with this. Uh, this is just another example. I've gone right to the other end of the country. That first one was from Manchester. This is um, in the, the Medway Towns. 
and it's uh, you can see there that you've got noted that somebody's an ARP. Because the Medway towns, this is very much a garrison town, so you've got lots of people there. The jobs are quite interesting. You've got a lot of people who are concerned with the naval dockyard um, and so on. And then if you go down to the, the bottom, again, they seem to have made a real mess of the bottom halves of the pages. So you just hope your people are near the top. They seem to be in better nick. Um, but there's a, a, apart from the usual interesting ones down there, and um, oh, there's a change of name there, which explains why some of the transcriptions might not be all they might be, because somebody's got a fairly long name to start with, which is squished in there, and then it's changed to another long name, which is shoehorned into the same tiny space. Um, that's not the worst by a long way. But down at the bottom, there's somebody there who's... Um, Merchant Navy Reserve, and it gives a number. So you sometimes get nice little bonuses like that. And in places like this, which are very Navy, um, military, um, you may get more information about you know, service. This one is the, um, it, back in Westminster, this is the Naval and Military Club. And here you've got lots of um, rather you know, high-ranking high military types and um, quite a bit of detail about them, some of them... Um, working for the war office and there's one of them you get detail about you know he was wounded and invalided out in in february 1916 now um that's quite a nice little bonus also one of the people on here is actually um brigadier general in the u.s army so it's it, this is a nice example it's not just native people who are here visitors from overseas and in this case quite a distinguished one so that's rather a nice one i'm just going to finish with a bit about the area codes because um, when i spoke to our editorial people about you know putting stuff on the research guides and so on and i was oh are people really interested in area codes are you sure these are my people i know them they will be and we've had lots of inquiries about them now the three letter codes i've said are, are for the area which will be either a county borough a municipal borough an urban district or a rural district Although it was the, the um, enumeration was done by registrars, because the registration offices and the food offices were being run by local government, they are adjusted a bit to fit local government boundaries. So they're not going to um, dovetail nicely with the registration districts that as family historians were terribly familiar with. Um, London, of course, has to be slightly different because London has metropolitan boroughs and two cities. Generally speaking, they are arranged by county, but some of the divisions aren't counties. They're parts of a county, like the ridings of Yorkshire. And uh, an interesting grouping, uh, um, quite a lot of Cambridgeshire is actually categorised under Isle of Ely. And there's an interesting area, of, it's only about three districts, which is, doesn't belong to a county, but it is the Soak of Peterborough. All of that sort of general detail is, is on the, the Find My Past page that I told you about with the list. Um, and, you know, and Birmingham is entirely in Warwickshire for the purposes of this, even though we know that bits of it are in Staffordshire and Worcestershire. And similarly, Bristol is all in Gloucestershire. Sorry, Somerset, it just is. If you want to know, all you've got to do is commit to memory these two books, the Guide to the Local Administrative Units of England, um, Southern and Northern, two nice big doorstops there. We have them in the library, but um, those are my own personal copies, which is a bit sad. Um, the enumeration districts is the area code plus another letter. In a very, very few cases where there was a huge influx of population, possibly evacuees, after the plans of division had been drawn up, there are two extra letters. So just occasionally you'll get a five-letter code. In our catalogue discovery, the record series is RG101. And on the whole, um, an enumeration district is going to be one, a single piece. Sometimes if it strayed into a second book, it might be two pieces. That's why there are more pieces than there are enumeration districts. There are about 65,000 enumeration districts, and we've got about 66,000 uh, pieces. And unfortunately, and I only discovered this when I had a query, and I delved into it, and I realized, oh, rats, they do not survive. The descriptions of the enumeration districts, as in down this street, up that street, all this, that you are accustomed to seeing at the beginning of a census, and in particular, the 1911 census, the RG78 enumerator summary books, they had those, and we've got the samples, 
But the completed ones um, don't survive. I haven't been able to find any anyway. We certainly haven't got them. And there was no reason for them to be kept. Wartime, paper shortage, pulp them, make them into something useful, I suppose, like new identity cards. So that's a nuisance. This is just a, sh a shot from um, Discovery, just to show you what it looks like. And I picked um, Chesham, which is where I, in Buckinghamshire, which is where I happen to live. You know, my talk, my rules, why not? Uh, but you'll see RG101, and they, the piece numbers are four uh, numbers and a letter. Because there are over 66,000 of them, um, 66,000, that's an awfully long number. So it's one of the... Very, very few series. It's so big that we've, we've added letter codes. Normally within an area, you will go up to something like JK or, or L, uh, and not usually any further than that. And for the benefit of anybody who was thinking about it, I did kind of look, and none, none of the obvious four-letter words um, seem to have become... Um, uh, the enumeration district codes although the good people of, of, of one enumeration district in Northwood were extremely unhappy that their, their area code, their enumeration district was B-O-C-H which was Bosch um, I had to explain why that was inappropriate to a younger member of staff um, <laughs> but you know trust, trust me, Bosch, not a popular word in, during the Second World War um, so use, if you use this in conjunction with the, uh, with the, list on, the simplified list on Find My Past, you can get a, a, a picture of all these districts. The area codes, and this is the, the final really, really nerdy bit. No area codes start with any of these letters, I, M, P, S, U, V, or Y. And I know why in every single case except for I... I haven't found anything about it. I suspect it's like the, the, the frequent convention that you don't use I, you just use J, because it looks too much like a number. But I have yet to find any proof. However, M was used for Merchant Navy. P, and only for a limited time, was used for new arrivals in the country. S was used in Scotland, which was no great surprise to me. U was Northern Ireland. V, incredibly rare, but for the vagrants who really were sleeping in ditches and under bushes and not in night hostels, um, they did have arrangements, as, as in the census, for enumerating these people, but there were very, very few who were actually um, registered as, um, you know, with, with, with a V uh, letter. And Y was used for replacement cards. Uh, they, the 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 way that cards were issued and the different colours of cards and the style of cards, trust me, it's fascinating, but don't worry, I'm not going to start explaining it now. Ones that were kind of in the series, CIG and CIJ were the um, codes used for the Channel Islands. FOA was overseas diplomats. So we've got um, you know, some in nice, interesting, exotic foreign names and, of course, Joseph Kennedy, US ambassador. And HZ was the code for the Isle of Man. Now, I mentioned that Scotland and Northern Ireland have got their registers which are open to uh, freedom of information requests. Unfortunately, the returns for the Isle of Man and the Channel Islands, which are not part of the UK, their dependencies under the Crown, nobody knows what happened to those records. I am reasonably certain that they would be destroyed. Partly, the Channel Islands got occupied, which um, would be a, a fairly good reason for the, the records being destroyed. Um, but neither the Channel Islands nor the Isle of Man has the National Health Service. So once national registration ended, there was no reason to keep the records. So it may be that they'll turn up in a big black bin liner somewhere. I rather suspect not. But that's my educated guess. I'd be very happy to be proved wrong. Sometimes I really like being wrong. And if those things turned up, I'd be as pleased as anybody. And that's just, um, just in case you've never seen an identity card. That's what they look like. The, the buff-coloured ones were the ones that were issued in 1939. In 1943, there was a complete reissue, and these were more elaborate, much harder to forge. They had serial numbers and all sorts of things on them. Again, I'll spare you the details, but they're really interesting. Honestly, they are. And where there's a system, there's always an opportunity. Not just the criminal classes and the, and the dodgy ration books, 
But as soon as um, identi the, you know, the, the publicity is being rolled out for the National Register, you get the people who are offering to sell you a, a, a smart Rexine binder to keep your identity card in. Uh, or in this, which I rather like because it has a picture with it, an identity wristlet. That strikes me as quite a good idea because if you're running for your life with your clothes on fire because your house has been hit by an incendiary bomb, you might well leave your identity card behind, but if you've got a wristlet, that will help. And the, um, the, the, the local officers, um, they had a category of people that they called the ideal losers, which were the people who needed to get their card replaced either because of their own stupidity and carelessness or for some extremely good reason. But at least they had a note of their number, which made finding them and getting the details a darn sight easier. Um, so on that note of the ideal losers, I will stop now. I've run over time. I've been quite good for the last several talks I've done, and I'm slipped back into bad habits. But thank you for your patience, and thank you for listening. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.